Sorry, I had to get that. Yeah, there's nothing to live up to there. That's (laughs) just, you know. Now I have a new thing to lament. So, lament introductions. Um, So I've got a lot to say this morning. And and there's a lot to be said in general about lament, because I think this is a... Um, it's a cultural blind spot for us. It's a theological blind spot, and it's um, a noticeable pres- absence in our in our worship as a church a lot of times. And um, earlier last week, I knew this sermon was coming, so it's been on my mind for a little while. And I was having coffee with another pastor in town, and he said, "Oh yeah, I did a sermon on lament once. You know, in like." 10 years of ministry, he did one on lament. And I was like, yeah, I, I think statistically that's an improvement, actually, on a lot of people's experience. But he said, uh, when I did it, the thing that uh, stuck in my mind is when he was getting up to, to preach that day, the, the music leader got up and he said, uh, now I want you to think about all that stuff that's going on in your week, all the, you know, the trouble and the confusion and the pain and anger, and I just want you to leave all that at the door. And today we're just going to worship God. And today I bring you the good news of lament. <laughs> lament is part of our worship. We don't leave any part of ourselves at the door. God can handle that. We don't have to check it and leave it there. Uh, God can deal with our pain uh, more competently than we can. So the, the symptom of the problem here is that all the messiness, frustration, and pain of everyday life, uh, we are oftentimes told that it has no place in church. But the good news is that it, it does. And this is actually the best part uh, of the all-access that's granted to us. We have all access to God. We can bring all of our prayers, all of our requests, all of our praise before God. And today, we talk about how we bring all of our pain, all of our frustration, and we lay that before God. Now, there's a, a problem here that I encountered, which was, uh, I think some people don't even know uh, what lament means. And I thought I knew, but I didn't. It, um, I was like, let me just whip up a quick definition here, and four hours later, I came up with a couple, uh, couple quotes here. And one is from um, uh, an Old Testament scholar named uh, Bruce Waltke, who actually, I was talking to Mary Bell and Chappie, and they went to undergraduate school with Bruce. Uh, but he translated the Psalms in the New International Version. So if you have an NIV Bible, he translated all of those Psalms. Uh, and he says it like this. He says, Biblical lament is too mysterious to equate cheaply with psychological complaint. Nor can it be comprehended exhaustively for a seminary textbook. It certainly reflects on the human condition, but it also reflects on the character of God. So, what we see from that is it's a reflection on our own emotions, our own frustrations, but every time we lament, we're also saying something about God. So all of our theology is actually tied to our lament. What we say about God, what we say about ourselves, comes out when we lament. And soon Chan Ra, who's... um, a professor and his pastor, uh, he wrote a book on lament and he said it like this. He says, lament is an act of protest. 
as the lamenter is allowed to express indignation and even outrage about the experience of suffering. And so we've got a big definition now, but I think I've, I've, I've defined it, now I've got to go back. We're going to take a step back. We need to talk about what is it ultimately that we lament? What, what's underlying all of the laments in the Bible and in our lives? Um, and it's what, as Christians, we call sin. Um, and so I have this quote here, and this is from a guy named uh, Cornelius Plantica, Jr. Um, not senior, I know a lot of us would be confused. I, it's junior. I've never heard of senior. But uh, he says, Shalom is the Hebrew term, which means the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. I'll say that again. That's shalom. That's when we say peace in the Bible, when we read peace. That's the peace that God created in the garden. It says the webbing together of humans, God, and all creation in fulfillment, justice, and delight. So not just justice, but also delight. Uh, And not just delight, but fulfillment. Um, And not just for humans, but for all creation. All of God's creation, living to its fullest potential, living in justice and living in harmony, all webbed together, that's shalom. Anything that violates that is sin. And in fact, he goes on to say sin is what he calls culpable shalom breaking. So anytime uh, you mess with the justice, fulfillment, or delight between you and God, you and humans, or you and any other aspect of creation, you're sinning. Now, sin becomes very, very large and unmanageable at that point. And that's, you know, we have Jesus who manages our, our sin. And what I, when I was thinking about sin, I was thinking about the way that different churches and different theological traditions lament. And I noticed a pattern here, and you may have seen it in different, in different churches. What, and you have to forgive the terms, because I, I didn't pick them, but I found them. Uh, and so what we would call theological conservatives... Uh, evangelical Christians, however you would want to classify it, they tend to deal almost exclusively with personal sin. It's your sin uh, that you're confessing, you know, things that you've done, and you confess those, and Jesus forgives you of your sin, and it's this individual transaction. Theological liberals, on the other hand, what what we would call more liberal traditions or, or streams of theology, tend to avoid personal sin and instead like to address systemic sin. They, say, they like to say, you know, we're part of a, a larger problem here. There's this system of sin which we're all contributing to, we're all culpable, we're all guilty for, um, and they don't like as much talking about individual sin. And the good news is the Bible actually makes us deal with both. So the Bible isn't theologically conservative or theologically liberal. It's biblical. (laughs) So that's good news for all parties involved. No matter where you come from theologically, you're wrong. (laughs) Now, the way this plays out in lament is I did a a confusing job of this at first service. So I'm going to try to do it a little better. But uh, I'm picturing four different quadrants. Um, So if you want to think of it that way, there's two different 
axes or dimensions. Um, and um, this is how, I'm, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to give you, um, I like to describe it as if, if we have a brand new closet, I'm building shelves and hangers for you. And that way when you encounter things in the Bible, you know which shelf to put it on. You know, you know where it goes, you have categories for it in your mind. So there's two axes that we need to talk about. The, the first is there's the personal side of it, sometimes called the individual side, and then there's the corporate side of sin. So um, th- there's one axis. The personal says, I wronged a person. Um, the, the corporate side says, I'm part of a group, community, or system that wrongs people. And we find both of those in the Psalms. But the second dimension is that there's the sense in which you are sinned, you've sinned, you're penitent, you feel bad about the sin that you've done, but the other side of sin is lamenting over times you've been sinned against. And I think that's, uh, for a lot of American Christians, is something we are not uh, allowed to talk about. We don't have a lot of space to talk about that. So the four... If I were to put it real bluntly, category one is uh, personal and sin, which is, uh, Lord, I feel bad because I, I stole Drew's car. And the personal sin against is, Lord, I'm upset because Drew stole my car. And the corporate sin is, uh, Lord, I feel bad because my family stole all of Drew's family's cars. And the corporate sin against is, Lord, help us because Drew... Family stole all of my family's cars. And these are all different dimensions that we see uh, in play in the Bible. And these are all aspects of sin. They're breaking shalom. And the appropriate biblical response is lament. So I've got uh, two psalms that I'm going to share, which is not nearly enough. Which, by the way, I I read a couple introductions to the Psalms and a few different commentaries, and I saw these uh, breakdowns of there are sub-genres within the Psalms. So there's um, praise, and there's um, songs of confidence, and there are coronation, you know, when there's a new king or something like that. That's Psalm 2. But then there's Psalms of lament, and there's 150 Psalms, and there's seven or eight different categories and 50 of the psalms are lament. One-third of the biblical hymn book is lament. Now, I didn't do an exact study, but if I pick up an American hymnal, I don't think one-third of it is lament. Uh, In fact, I have a friend who's doing a a doctorate on this, and uh, he went through the CCLI, which is the licensing group for contemporary Christian music, and he was categorizing how many of the top 50 for the last... 15 years have categorized as a lament, and he found one. Um, and that's, that's indicative of a problem. And it's not picking on, it's not saying the songs we have are bad, it's just saying our picture we're painting is incomplete. We're missing something really big that the Bible picks up on. And so Psalm 44 is a song of corporate lament for people being sinned against. This is God's people complaining about their oppression. And I'm actually going to start in verse 4 because verses 1 through 8 sound perfectly normal to us. Uh, Here's verse 4. It says, You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. 
Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. And if that were the end of it, we would call that a psalm of praise. That's, that's a good, you know, we could put chords to that and play it next week. Verse 9, the next sentence, says it like this. But you, speaking to God, you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Now I don't know about you, but I think if I prayed that way in Sunday school, they'd kick me out. And that would just be quoting the Bible. But I don't, I don't know if we previously, I don't know, I'll just speak for myself. Prior to looking into biblical lament, I didn't have a category for that in my mental closet. I don't know where to hang that, that uh, article of clothing. And then it ends this way. Uh, this is skipping down to verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And, and so here we have an unresolved petition. It doesn't put a bow on it. It doesn't answer it. It's just out there. The next psalm that I want to call your attention to, because that one wasn't heavy enough, this is an individual lament about suffering and humiliation. And this is Psalm 22. If you want to turn there, that's fine, but I'll read it to you as well. And this is the psalm that so struck a chord of resonance with Jesus that these were his words on the cross. First of all, I want to be that holy. The first thing that comes to my mind is a psalm. You know, that's, but that's how deeply ingrained these words were into Jesus' heart and mind. That when he's facing suffering and affliction, the word of God comes to him to comfort him. Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night... But I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. 
Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, and you made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They, are, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and, and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. And it goes on. That, and that's just 1 through 15. But this is, there's this back and forth between there's thanksgiving and there's lament, but it's not, it's not solving any problems. It's just expressing what's there. And as we think about this, we need to think about our experiences in the church. And, you know, has the church been a place where we can express those feelings and those attitudes? Strongly stated language. So I've got two stories for you. And the first uh, is about a man named uh, Horatio Spafford. I know, uh, he's on your Spotify list, but... uh, He's actually the one who wrote the song It Is Well With My Soul. And I don't know if you know the story behind that song. But he was a successful businessman in the 1800s and in Chicago. But in 1871, a fire practically destroyed all of his wealth, everything he had that was precious to him. Overwhelmed by this, he decided to establish a deeper relationship with Jesus. So he was already a Christian. His, his fortune burned down. And all he has left is, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and his family, his wife and four daughters. And so he turns to Jesus, and you think, okay, well, that's a great story, but there's more. He decides the only way to grieve properly is he just needs to get out of Chicago. He needs to take a break. So he decides to go with his family on a trip to France. They buy their, their tickets, and they're getting ready to board the boat across the Atlantic. And he gets called back to Chicago last minute for business. Uh, a few days later, he, he finds out that the ship his family was on collided with another ship in the ocean and sank. He got a telegram from his wife that said two words, saved alone. So she made it to France. His four daughters died. So Spafford, having lost his fortune and his family, he decided to sail to France to meet his wife. And the crew of his boat showed him the spot where his family's boat had sank. And while he was standing there, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And when we have the backdrop for that song, we can hear his pain. We can hear the angst and the frustration, but we also see this remarkable trust in God. There's a second story. This is another um, musician from Chicago. Um, Just a coincidence there. I'm not picking on Chicago musicians this morning. But um, Early in the 20th century, a man named uh, Thomas Dorsey is a prominent blues musician who turned to gospel hymn writer and uh, gave up his secular career in music, decided to write music for the church, for the Lord. Um, And 
in, uh, I think it's August of 1932, his wife was pregnant with his first child. It was pretty, pretty near the due date. And he decided to go from Chicago to St. Louis uh, to perform a show. And while he was there, he got word that his wife had gone into labor and died during labor. And he was so distraught that he got in the car and drove back to Chicago in time to hold his newborn baby as it died. And you got to think, at a moment like that, you say, Lord, I gave up my career for you, and you give me this. But what he did, the only way he could express himself, is he walked over to the piano, and he wrote, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. So these are powerful stories of faith, stories of, uh, of resilience, but stories of pain and beauty in the midst of pain. And I wonder if that's missing from our experience in the American church. In fact, I don't wonder. In my experience, I know that it has. Actually, I'll just throw one more out there, and you can just Google this later. And I'll, I can see you Googling on your phone now, but don't. If you go look up the lyrics, to, I noticed it this Christmas. There's a song called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which is actually a lament. Um, and, and I'm not going to, but you can go read that guy's backstory too. I think he lost his son in the Civil War, and he wrote that, uh, that song at Christmas time. It's a painful and beautiful song, but that's just another one for you. Um, but all this to say, so what am I doing? You know, I'm, I'm pulling up all of these, uh, these deep and painful issues, uh, and where I'm going is I've got three points to make about lament, and this hardly covers it all. But the first thing I'm going to say is that lament is unresolved. It doesn't fix everything for us. It doesn't put a nice bow on it, and it doesn't make everything better right away, which is what we want. In fact, uh, I often think of it this way. If you were to turn the Psalms of Lament and try to draw out their story, and you wanted to make a movie out of it, the only theater in town that would show these movies is the Esquire. (laughs) The Esquire shows these these indie movies that you sit there for a three-hour experience, and, and the characters are going through trouble, and then it's just over. And you're like, well, what happened? You know, like, you know, where's, where's the ending? Where's the end of this story? And that's, lament doesn't work like that. These psalms of lament, they don't come to a nice, happy conclusion all the time. The stories of lament don't do that. In fact, if you go read, I noticed this once, this is funny, the end of Jonah, technically Jonah 4, you could classify as lament. Because Jonah is whining that God didn't kill the city that he wanted killed. Um, which makes him sound like a great man. But uh, I noticed that we were watching a children's video of this, and they added an ending to the end of Jonah, where Jonah went home and told the good news about God's love and grace to all his friends. I'm like, where does this come from? But that's how uncomfortable we are with the Bible. I, that's in a you know, children's Sunday school curriculum. They had to add an ending and fix it, because clearly God forgot that part where Jonah was happy and nice and went on his way. The second thing I'll say about lament, so the first thing is that lament is unresolved, and that's okay. There's space to be unresolved in worship and in the presence of God. You don't have to be fixed every single Sunday. 
The second thing we'll say is the lament is relational. When you read the book of Job, Job is frequently lamenting. He's protesting, he's petitioning, he's challenging God's judgment and decision-making. Why would you do this? But Job is the only theologian in the book of Job. He's got three friends around him. The three friends talk about God, but Job talks to God. That's what lament is. Lament is taking your concerns directly to God. It's not complaining. It's not slander. It's not gossip. You're directly talking to God. You're taking those complaints to him, and he can handle them. I don't see any redactions by God in the Bible about Psalm 22 and 44 being too offensive. And, and 44, you know, it says, you know, you're the source of our, our struggle. You're the source of our pain. Why are you doing this to us? It doesn't bother God. It, it may not be accurate, but it doesn't bother him to have an honest expression of emotion in his presence. He would rather have you do that with him than walk away and say that about him. So lament, it's unresolved, but it's relational. And the final thing I'll say is that lament gives structure to chaos. Because when you go through the death of a loved one, or the loss of a job, or or some other tragedy, the main thing you feel is a sense of disorientation. And that's what, you know, that's what a a lot of depression is settles into, you know, you can't find your footing in life. You don't know what's going on in the world you don't know what's going on in your life and what these psalms of lament do is they give you a vocabulary to express these things they give you structure you say i can't even put my pain into words right now but god has given us words of lament and we can use these words of lament to express ourselves to express the pain uh, that we feel and the frustration and so Sun Chan Ra, who I quoted earlier, he says, he says it this way. He says, for the complete biblical narrative to take root in our community, lament has to become part of our story. You can't do biblical theology in your church unless you're doing lament. That's just part of the experience. There's the book of Lamentations, one-third of the Psalms, the end of other books. Jesus cries out in lament when he comes and experiences, uh, you know, the pain and suffering of this world. And so the goal, one of the goals of lament, then, is not just to uh, express your emotions to God, but we experience suffering together rather than in isolation. And that's, that's really where Christian maturity takes you eventually. If you stay on board long enough, you get past your own pain and your own grief, and you bear one another's burdens. You say, you know, your pain is my pain. And we come alongside each other, and, we, and that's this others-oriented nature that, that Christ has and is, you know, and is molding us and shaping us all into by the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, we become others-oriented, and others are oriented towards us. And we have this community, we have a church family that's caring for us in times of lament. And so the reasons for laments are all around us. I'm going to walk you through some in case you can't think of any. Now, most of us encounter some lamentable thing every week. If you go seven days from church to church without encountering a reason to lament, you're not looking hard enough. Because even if you have the best week of your life and you don't personally encounter anything, 
you live in a community of people who face all sorts of trouble each week. And the question you need to ask yourself is, you know, do those people feel comfortable suffering with you? Can they bring their suffering and their pain and their struggle in your presence? You know, what, what will you do with it? Can you leave it unresolved? Can you be in relationship with them? Can you help give structure to the chaos with, with the Psalms of lament? And if you, if you say, well, everything's great with me and my family and my community, uh, read the newspaper, turn on the news. You'll find more reasons for lament. And if you have a really weird newspaper that's all positive and doesn't have anything negative in it, first of all, tell me what it is. Secondly, you can, you can push even further. You can go outside of, outside of this building, outside of this community, outside of this city, and look at global Christianity. And if you're, if you're living in a church, in a city, in a community that's living a carefree, blissful lifestyle, are there not Christians who cry out around the world every day, How long, O oh Lord? How long will you hide your face from us? How long will we cry out and you don't hear? And if you don't believe me, go home and Google the phrase Christian persecution. I did it yesterday, and I found a site that actually... Um, has an index for showing the level of persecution in different countries. The worst are uh, North Korea and Somalia, but it goes, there's top 50, and the U.S. is not on it, by the way. And there's a top 50, and within the top 50 is Mexico. I had no idea. But there are Christians crying out to God across our border for, at, for the sake of persecution, for help. And... and what we can do by regularly practicing lament, one, we're confronting the state of the world. We're, conf- we're confronting the loss of shalom. We say, God, we know that God and human and all creation, every department, every angle, every scope of creation was meant to live in justice, fulfillment, and delight. And we've lost that. Because you can't mourn properly until you've come to terms with what you've lost. And what you've lost is in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's on its way back in. But lament, it also allows us to empathize and to advocate. You can empathize, you can share one another's burdens, and you can even do it across the global Christian community. You can advocate, you can go to God with them. Say, God, why is this happening? You know, why do we feel this pain? Why do we experience this suffering? What is going on? Uh, and in that way, we, we, we go beyond ourselves and we start to see the gospel played out in lament. And so the question for us today, the, 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 the concluding question here is, what will you do with the access you've been given? You've been given all access to God with praise and ask uh, and, and thanksgiving. What will you do with the access to lament? Will you turn to God and lament uh, the shalom breaking that you see in your world and in your life, that you see in the lives of others, that you share in with the lives of others. Because lament, it can be a place of catharsis, it can be a place of healing, it can be comfort for the people of God. And by walking with God through pain and suffering, we can deepen our reliance on Him and deepen our relationship with Him. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we, um, we thank you this morning for the access that you've given us 
uh, in relationship, that you've pursued us in this relationship and that you've granted us um, your ear to listen. Uh, we thank you for the, um, the gift and sacrifice of your son uh, and the example that, that he provides for us in that way of lamenting. Uh, we pray that we would be people who, um, when broken, turn to you and lament, um, that we would honestly bring our concerns to you and lay them at your feet, uh, and that we would help others in doing the same. We pray that um, you would use lament to shape our theology, to shape our thinking, and to help us conform into the people that we're becoming and that you would have us be. And we ask uh, all these things in the name of your Son with the prayer he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debtors, that we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever.